0: I do want to just catch you up to speed. Last week was Mother's Day. Uh, we did a teaching specifically on womanhood. The week before, we're in 2 Kings 3. I was at home, not doing too well physically. Um, and here's kind of what we're, we're, we're at and what we're doing. Man, we've been in this, this series of prophets and kings for over a year. A lot of church leaders are like, you should never do a series longer than eight weeks. We're like, we're at week 60-something, I don't know. Um, We're going through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. Now we're in 2 Kings. Here's the idea. I think this is so important. I've struggled with kind of putting different leaders and people in the Old Testament, like who was what king? Where did he go? What prophet went where? Just a simple way to understand this. uh, You have Saul, who's the first king of Israel, then David, then Solomon. And then in 1 Kings 12, this is a huge shift that happened. The kingdom turned into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is called Yes, Israel, one person, but it's okay. But what's the southern, the southern kingdom's called what? Judah. So you have Solomon's son, what was his name? Tricky. Hey, Rehoboam. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he oversaw the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. That's where the temple was, that's where the priests were. You have Judah and Benjamin, most of the Levites, they're in the southern kingdom. Then you have the northern kingdom, primarily the other 10 tribes. And then here's where we're at, just kind of to follow along. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, we're reading a lot of history in a short amount of time. And it's going to pick up more in Second Kings. But eventually, the northern kingdom is taken captive by the Assyrians. They go into captivity. They go into slavery. The southern kingdom is taken captive by the Babylonians. And that's where we see a lot of other books come into play. The reason why I'm sharing this with you guys is I want to give you a good framework for what we're doing. I want you to understand that um, the gospel of Jesus didn't begin in the book of Matthew. It began in Genesis. And in 1 Samuel, Second Samuel, 1 Kings, Second Kings, there's these little whispers, these little like gospel threads where you just see Jesus' his ministry, maybe through the, the prophet Elijah or Elisha. You just see God out where you see like little stories that remind you of a big story. Remember, all of these stories point to a bigger story. All of these stories really remind us of a greater story, that there is brokenness, there is sin, there is slavery, there is rebellion. There's wicked kings, there's good kings, but ultimately there will one day come the true king of kings who'll put everything right and put everything in order. And this story points us to Jesus, his life, his ministry, and also Jesus' future kingdom. So we're going through this because I want you to see the gospel in the Old Testament. I want you to see Jesus at work and so here in 2 Kings 4, this is where I get really excited. Um, maybe you've heard me say this, but this is very true. Um, 2 Kings 4 has one of my favorite stories. We're about to read it. It's a phenomenal story. Chapter 5, chapter 6. We're actually entering into some like really fun um, Old Testament stories I just, I'm just ex- i very excited to jump into with you guys. So the next few weeks, it's like, yes, I've been kind of like dying to get to these stories for months, if not years. Um, so... We're going to jump in in just a second, but here's um, the title today and what we'll look at. The title is kind of what I just mentioned. The title is simply Whispers of the Gospel. Whispers of the Gospel. We just see these little elements of the Gospel so clearly in these stories. Listen, we're going to be introduced to two women. One woman is about to lose two sons to debtors, another woman is going to receive a son, give birth to a son, the son's going to die and rise again. The title again is Whispers of the Gospel. We're going to see that a debt is paid, a son is given and a son is resurrected. I just think that God throws these little stories in to go, I feel like I've heard this before. I feel like I've seen this before. So I'm excited to to jump into this. And this, honestly, it's funny. This is almost like a good Mother's Day message because here's these women of faith, women who cry out to God, these two women who are like, I need help. God show up, and God shows up. It might not always be how we want or when we want, but we just see these beautiful illustrations of the gospel here. I want to say in 2 Kings 4, um, it feels like I'm reading something out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It just feels like Elisha's ministry and what he's doing. It just reminds me of Jesus' ministry. Sometimes we think prophets are only those who are to speak forth God's truth boldly, but we can't forget they're also bringers of God's mercy. Prophets weren't just there to be like, you're all in sin and you need to repent. Part of it. But a lot of time prophets were sent because they, just, they needed to be uh, merciful they need to go out and bring mercy to the community. So um, this is a longer section. We're going to look at uh, 37 verses, but why don't we do this? Let's just pray. Let's just pray. And then uh, we'll jump into our text today. Can we do that? Because, uh, Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you so much that you um, have not left us alone. You've not left us in the dark. That, God, you are God who speaks. That you are God who reveals that God, at various times and in various ways, you've spoken to us, the prophets of old, but in these last days, you spoke to us through your son. As the author of Hebrews says, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that these stories today remind us and point us to um, a greater story that our debt has been paid, that your son was given and your son rose again. And God, we cling to that truth We cling to Jesus, how amazing you are, that this text, this scripture just speaks of you. And God, we ask that you just bring insight and clarity in your wonderful name. Amen. On Friday, around noon, I was at my office, a local coffee shop um, where I'm usually at. And I'm on my computer and I get an email. And then I start getting text messages from many of you guys about Tim Keller has passed away. Now, if you guys know me, i maybe mention him here and there, not, not very often. Um, the thing that was bizarre, and, I, there, and it's funny today, praying through this message and praying through like even the opening and sharing, I, my, I didn't even like want to, you know, I don't know, address this because you're like, somebody's like, who's this guy? What are you even talking about? Um, this is a guy that's been very influential, obviously, in my life. I feel like God has really brought him at times in my life uh, in very pivotal moments of, of my faith to just encourage me, speak truth into to my life. He's the most influential person in my life as someone I've never met before. It, it's very bizarre, you know? It, it's almost I feel like my grandpa passed away, and I've never met him. It's just weird, right? I was, I was at Starbucks, you know, reading, studying, see the emails come in, start reading about it, and I just had a moment. I'm not going to lie. I teared up a little bit, maybe a little bit more than tears. Um, I'm sitting there at Starbucks... Kind of having a moment, and I'm like, gosh, what if someone's like, are you okay? Is everything all right? And it's like, yeah, someone who I never met just died. <laughs> like, I'm like, I probably look like a psychopath. Um, I'm just sitting there like, what is going on with me? And the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this up is um, I'm very thankful for his life and his ministry. And it's, it's very interesting to me because this has been a, a year, you know, another pastor named Charles Stanley. Gosh, man, some beautiful, like, just great giants in the faith are like, you, you see them pass away. You're like, oh, Lord, what's going on? You know, uh, this October will be 10 years since my pastor's passing. Chuck Smith died in October of 2013. And it's weird because I'm like having these moments, it's hitting me. I'm like, God, what's going on? Um, You know, who's next? We need to see like, this is a voice that during critical moments, I'm like, what does Keller have to say on this topic? Um, the reason why I bring this up is, one is this, sometimes this, these things will happen and we just kind of move on and some of you have no idea. Like, I'm very thankful for this guy's ministry in life because he's really helped the church kind of transition into the 21st century. With every century, with every generation, there's new issues, new belief systems, new structural things that try to pull away from the church or God's kingdom. And here's a guy who I think at very pivotal moments, um, the book, reason, The Reason for God, really changed my life around 20 years old, um, struggling with certain things in my faith if you struggle with doubt or skepticism, read The Reason for God. If you struggle with who you are and how God has made you and your identity and how you relate to God, read the book Prodigal God. Um, If you feel like there's idols in your life and you can't overcome these things and you're going back to the same thing over and over and over again, read his book Counterfeit Gods. I mean, I just feel like there's been so many moments where I'm like, ah, God, what's the purpose of life and work? And sometimes ministry can feel like work and I don't want it to. And he wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor about work and your work. And my point is... His writings, his work has helped me be a better husband. I believe a better dad, a better friend, hopefully. And it's been so influential for me. I share this with you because before we know it, there'll just be another one, another one, another one. And I want to encourage you guys, like, man, our, our faith is built off so many men and women, as we looked at last week even, so many men and women who passed down the mantle. We looked at this mantle being passed down from Elijah to Elisha. We look at this idea of, like, Elijah is taken to heaven. The mantle is given to Elisha. Now here's Elisha continuing his work. The reason why I'm bringing this up, because in some like, where are you going with this? I don't know. This is, I'll be honest, this is just therapy for me. So, okay. Be patient with me. Um... The reason why I do bring this up is because he has been a guy that has constantly given me, I think, the best way to read and understand scripture. There is something called hermeneutics, which means we just want to have good application and tools in how we read the Bible and how we interpret the Bible. It's very important to have good hermeneutics, good tools in which we read scripture and understand scripture and interpret scripture. One of the best hermeneutics he gave to me, I don't even know what to call it, I'm gonna call it like a hermeneutic uh, was John 539. John 539. And we know this verse, I've mentioned this verse. This is kind of the point of why we're doing this. It's where Jesus said, you read the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. Jesus is like, you guys are missing the point. The the whole book speaks of me. The whole book speaks of me. It says, beginning from Moses and all the prophets, Jesus opened up the scriptures about how it spoke concerning himself in Luke 24. Luke 24. All of what God's word speaks of Jesus. We have to see that. And in some way, I'm like, where's Jesus in this? When we read 1 Kings, Second Kings, and we go through these books, my question is, where's Jesus? Where's gospel threads? Where's the idea of sin or the fall, brokenness, rebellion? Where's the Savior? Like, where, where is this? Um, where do we see God trying to make all things new? God's trying to make all things right. And I'm very thankful for, for again, because his perspective, I feel like more than any I've ever read, has just constantly pointed to look for Jesus, look for Jesus in this. And that's our hope. To me, here in 2 Kings 4, we see whispers of the gospel. Here's what we're going to see. Two points today. You guys ready? Two points. Number one is this. A debt is paid, okay, verse 1 through 7. And then verse 8 through 37, we're going to see a son is given and a son is risen. I don't know. This just sounds like the gospel to me. All right, a debt is paid, a son is given miraculously, he dies, and he's resurrected. I'm not saying these perfectly always identify the story of Jesus, but there's these themes or threads or big picture ideas where God's like, I'm preparing your heart for something. Your debt has to be paid one way or another. You could never pay your debt. I could never pay my debt. The debt that was against me, too great of a debt. Colossians talks about how the debt that was against me has been nailed to the cross of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. A debt I could never pay was nailed to the cross that day paid in full. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? And guess what? A son was given. A son died, but a son rose again. And even though it's not going to perfectly identify the story of Jesus, it's just like God's, I think, creating this longing in your heart for like, yes, where is this miraculous son who dies and rises and his name is, is Jesus? So we're going to just kind of read through this text. I also believe verse 1 through 7 is a beautiful story of the Holy Spirit. So ready? 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. Sorry, a lot of prep. You guys okay? You guys ready? Thank you for that therapy session. I needed that. Thank you for hearing me out. All right. Chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what he says. And the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha. She said, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not, a, not too few, gather a lot. Verse four, then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside you just keep doing that. Verse five, so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. Yo. Okay. Here we go. I love this story. Let's just break this down. A debt is paid. We'll look at the first verse. First one, uh, she cried out to Elisha. I truly can't imagine this idea. I mean, this is some deep, deep pain. Her husband died. Her husband died. She's a widow. Has a couple of kids. Obviously, the husband, that time period, the breadwinner, helping provide for his family. Oh, no, my main sort. There's no insurance. There's no safety net. My husband's dead. I'm in debt. The creditors are coming. They're going to take my sons. I love how it says she cried out. This word is pretty intense in the Hebrew. It means to cry out for help, to cry in distress or in grief. It's just it this intensity. Like, it's almost in this ongoing way, like, help me. Like, my my husband's dead. My sons are going to be taken away. I can't imagine what that would do. Just mentally, emotionally, husband's dead. Sons are about to be taken from you. God, help. I have to give her credit, man. What does she do? She turns to a prophet of God. Like, we have to give her credit. There's a lot of things people can turn to in moments of crisis. The cool thing for us is we don't have to turn to prophets. We can turn to God himself. A prophet is basically an ambassador of God to the people right? You, you think about this, and just put it simply, a priest represents the people to God. A prophet represents God to the people. So she goes to what she knows. She's like, I, help. I'm about to lose it all. Again, in moments of crisis, I cannot stress enough, just run. Run to God. She not waste time. We just see that she, her husband's passed. Creditors are coming. And she's like, I'm going to go to the one I know who can help me. Notice this. I, I, even, I've known this story for a while, read this story. I love this story. But um, I, some things I've never really focused on or picked up on. She goes, your servant to Elisha. He most likely was one of the prophets probably from like Gilgal. If you guys remember, there's certain territories or regions where they had like prophet training school. He seems to be one of Elisha's boys. Elisha, you know this guy, your servant. This one, look at his legacy, the way, how she describes it in verse one. Your servant feared the Lord. He's your servant. He feared the Lord. This is what he's known for, and he's dead. Here's a guy who lived a pretty good life. I mean, he's serving God, serving this prophet. He feared God. He has a decent legacy. She's like, help. I love Proverbs 14, 12, the 2 says, it says, whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. There's something beautiful about being on people who fear the Lord. They walk in uprightness. Those who fear the Lord. She's like, come on. My husband, your servant, he feared God. He's dead. The creditor's coming. I'm in need. I need you to show up. Um, Obviously, here's the point. She has a debt. She has a debt she cannot pay. She goes to one who thinks, how can you help me? I have a debt. I can't pay it. I'm in the hole. I'm going to lose everything. I've already lost my husband. I'm going to lose my sons. Help me. And notice what he says in verse 2. What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. A couple things. He like, basically says, what do you need? What, what shall I do for you? Maybe it seems like, come on, it's pretty obvious or it's like inconsiderate. Sometimes the best thing we can do is just simply say, here's my need. So what shall I do for you? Well, obviously, i we need my debt paid. But we have needs. I think one of the best things we can do is just say, you know what? We really do have needs. Sometimes people actually don't realize the need. Some people don't realize they're in debt. Can say this? One of the best things we can do is realize you and I have a debt we could not pay. We need to see that. There is a debt on my life that I could have never paid. There is a debt on your life that you could have never paid. Before, when we talk about the solution, how Jesus died for your sins, he rose again, some of you are like, so what? It's because you don't realize you have a debt on your life you could have never paid. Sometimes we actually need to sit in the need for a little bit. Like sit in that need, Sit in this, where would I be without God? I mean, what, what would I be? Honestly, I, I can't fathom sometimes how people get through the pains and sufferings of life without God. I don't get it. When I see suffering, when I see pain, and I'm in a unique place, I feel like we're like, I have the weirdest job in the world. I get to enter into beautiful high moments, weddings and baby dedications, and some of the lowest moments with people. And it's hard. I walk through it and I go, oh, this is hard. But yet I see within believers of Jesus a really unique hope that does not make, it transcends all understanding. And I look at people and go, how could they do this without God? Ugh, I, I don't I don't get it. I, re, I really don't get it. And I, I see this. She realizes there is a need, obviously, and I think sometimes we need to be, realize our need. We have a great need. Before I tell you, like, hey, there's something available, there's food to feed your soul, some of you need to know, like, you're hungry, you're starving. But you're like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm filled up on other things. It's like, ugh. Recognize the giant need in your life, and then he says, um, "What do you have?" I love it. So he's like, "What shall I do?" And then, "What do you have? What do you have in your house?" This is a profound question to me. Just, "What do you got? What do you got?" Uh, what do you mean? I'm a widow who lost my husband, about to lose my sons. She probably sold off everything if you think about it to pay her debt so far. She probably has sold off almost everything she has. What do I have? I'm a widow who lost my son, paid off my, as much debt as I can. I have my kids. I, all I have is a jar of oil. I don't know why, but I just <laughs> love this. It's probably, honestly, some sort of anointing oil from her her, her husband. He was a prophet. He used oil, most likely, obviously, because the word oil here is not the oil that we use for necessarily cooking. It's actually like prophetic oil that was used in ministry. So it's most likely like she's holding on to this thing that reminds her of her husband. Uh, I have a jar of oil. That's what I got. He's like, perfect. (laughs) I love it. It's it's something we would never expect. God, what are you going to do with this? Like, what could you possibly do with this? I think that this is a question, by the way, that's often like seen or asked. It's basically God going, what do you have? What do you have? If you remember this, I'll put it this way. God often begins with what we already have. You know this, right? Moses, what do you have? Uh, A staff. I can't speak, but I've been a shepherd. Okay, you're gonna be a shepherd of my people. All right. He's like, I can't even speak, God. I can't even talk. Doesn't matter. You have a staff. You're used to taking care of like sheep that don't listen to instructions. Welcome to ministry. All right, perfect. Let's go. You have a staff. Uh, Disciples had nets. Jesus goes, oh, you like to catch fish, do you? Well, now you're going to catch men, huh? Like you're going to be fishers of men. I just think that God so often does that. What do you have? I have a staff. I have nets. Uh, I love this. This boy, obviously, he goes to Jesus. He had a lunch. It's like, hey, the people are hungry. What do you have? I have some fish and bread. Perfect. I I don't want to harp on this too much, but I think it's worth pointing out. I really do believe so often God's like, what do you have? What do you have? What have I given you? What have I put in your hands? Use it." You know, sometimes if you've ever been in this place, I have felt like in different points of my life, I invested so much time, energy, and money into something. For example, for me, you know, growing up, it was basketball, basketball camps, trainers, lessons. And I'm like, sometimes like all that for what? But it's so cool. I've been able to actually see that used locally to share the gospel. In a lot of different basketball things here in South Florida, or like going to events, talking to kids. I've been able to share that internationally I remember playing just in different countries and like kids go going, oh, and like, it's not even that great. But I've been able to use like the things that I'm like, God, this is just all for nothing. Why did I, why did I spend so much time on this? And God's like, don't worry, you'll share the gospel with this. Something I thought was so minimal, so nothing. Basketball, what, my point is, what do you have? God's like, I've gifted some of you in some things and you felt like, why did I do that? What, what was that, what was that for? I really believe maybe it's just sitting around and God's like, I want to use that. I want to use that, that skill. That gifting, that thing you thought was all for nothing, I want to use that. Just laying around the house, God's like, I want to use that. So often, God begins with what we already have. And then obviously, we've read the story, but what I love about this is God loves to take what we have and he multiplies it. This is just what God does. It seems like whatever went into the hands of Jesus doubled more than that. God's like, I love to take what you have and I want to develop it and grow it. I really need to stress that point. Because I don't want you to think like, God's like, I've given you something. God's given you what? Certain talents. Remember the parable of the talents and what did one guy do? He just buried it in the sand. He's like, here's your talent back, God. He's like, that's not the point. It's not to take the thing I gave to, gave to you and just to bury it and one for one. No, no, I gave you five, I want 10. I gave you two, I want four. The point is God's given you certain things and he wants you to multiply it and he will multiply it, but you have to give it back. Okay, this is what I got, God. God's like, perfect. Thanks for giving it back. Let's now multiply it. I say, bring what you have to God. Allow him to multiply. Allow him to use it. Don't think it was just for, for nothing. There's a purpose. I really do believe. And I, I just love how this story plays out because it just, it reminds me of so many different stories we see with Jesus. I mean, Elisha's ministry, by the way, remember, Elisha received a double portion of the spirit. Remember, Elijah ascends in heaven. Before he ascends, he's like, what can I do? Elisha's like, I want a double portion of your spirit. If you guys know this, but it's, it's fascinating to me. Um, I believe the number is eight, but there's eight recorded miracles of Elijah and 16 recorded miracles of Elisha. It's just fascinating how people point this out. He truly seemed to have a double portion. There's so many more miracle stories with Elisha in Kings than there is with Elijah. God, he's just using him in a powerful, powerful way. And so God multiplies it. So here's what he says in verse three. He's like, all right, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few, not just a few. He says, here's what you gotta do. You have a jar of oil, go around town, Imagine doing this, knocking on your neighbor's door, and like, do you just have empty clay vessels, empty pots? I just need some empty pots. Like, uh, okay, here's some empty vessels. Now, here's what he's essentially saying. He's telling this widow, you need to prepare and get ready for a miracle. God's going to do something, but you have to join him in that, and you have to get ready for a miracle. I do think this is so profound. So often, God's not just like, okay, sit there and wait for me to show up. Oftentimes, God's like, get involved Like get ready, prepare yourself. I'm gonna do something. I want to see the Lord show up. I want to see the Lord do some amazing things. There are certain times in life you have to put yourself in really weird or vulnerable situations for God to show up. If you're like, I want God to show up and do something powerful, okay, go out, talk to your neighbors. God will show up. You have to like, but you have to put yourself in these moments. You get she's going to her neighbors asking for these empty vessels, and I really think what Elisha is saying to her, you gotta get ready for what God's gonna do. Get ready, get ready. He doesn't tell her yet what's gonna happen. He says, Go, get empty vessels. Again, this is so important to me. Joshua 3 5 says this. Joshua 3 5 Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. What does he say? Get ready. God's gonna do some wonderful things. Set yourself apart for that. We see this in John 11. Jesus said to Mary and Martha about Lazarus who is dead, Take away the stone. Even afterwards, they're like, But he's dead and it probably smells. Get ready, take away the stone. He didn't say what he's going to do. He's just like, get ready. Again, in John 2, Jesus said to the servants, if you remember at the, the wedding feast of Cana, he says, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. He doesn't tell them what he's going to do, but he's saying, prepare yourselves. I'm about to do something. I think this is so beautiful. The way faith works oftentimes is God's like, I'm going to show, you, show up. I'm not going to necessarily tell you what I'm going to do or how I'm going to do it or when I'm going to do it, but prepare, get the, the jars, fill them with water get some empty vessels, roll away the stone. He didn't say what he's going to do. He didn't tell them how or when. It's not all the details are there. But it's like, you got some work to do. Do you guys understand this? Do you guys see this ever in your life? Sometimes we do things in faith. Where we're like, why are you doing that? I don't know. I need to prepare myself and put myself in a position where God has to show up. There's certain times in life where you're like, I don't really get this. This feels a little weird and uncomfortable. I mean, I had such a beautiful experienced a couple weeks ago, um, me and my buddy from the church here, Dylan, we got to go to Austin, Texas, it's like a spiritual uh, retreat, I've never been on something like this, we get there, at this beautiful ranch in Texas, and just like us with some guys seeking the Lord, and they go, give us your phones, like first session, first thing to do is take your phones, we never phones for three days, that's, that's weird, by the way, you know, right, like today, like I'm not, you know, used to that, we had prep our wives, you know, we don't have our phones, but it's weird, you get there, and you're just kind of like, what do we do now, <laughs> you know, you're just like looking at each other, and you're like, used to like, you're like pulling out nothing, you're like, I have to talk to them, I guess, um. The beautiful thing was just so hearing some of these guys all across the country and their stories and some of the most faith-filled men I've been around and hearing how God has shown up in powerful, unique ways and hearing them go, listen, I feel weird sometimes for prayers I pray. But there are times God's like, you need to pray that in obedience. And I might not answer it when or how you want, but you just need to put yourself in a position where the only option is I show up. And it's so sweet. And you get around people like that. There's something really beautiful about that. Get empty vessels. Go to all of your neighbors. Find empty jars of clay, empty vessels that I can pour oil into. Unbelievable what this story is to me. I think this is such a preparation for the book of Acts, which I'll get to in just a second. But the idea is this. Please put yourself in a position and situation where the only option is God shows up sometimes. We're just like, okay, God, I'm going to fill these jars with water. What are you going to do? I'm gonna get some empty vessels. What are you gonna do? I do think that faith is not just God showing up. It's us putting ourselves in a position where you're like, okay, Lord, please show up. This is what we're asking you to do in this way. So he says, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, not too few. And verse four, it says, and when you have come in, shut the door behind you and your sons, then pour into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. I love that. So he's like, okay, once you get all the vessels, you're just gonna pour the jar of oil. And once it fills it up, set it aside. Once it fills up, set it aside. This is absolutely profound. Now, um, I guess I'll just start here because this, let me actually make sure this to me is a beautiful picture and analogy. And I, I remember the first time reading this, and to me it was just so God's like, this is so clear what this is to me. So beautiful. Okay, a couple things. One is this. Throughout scriptures, I mean, throughout the scriptures, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's just always, always been a symbol of the power of the Spirit in which the way God works. You have empty vessels and you have oil. Are you following along with me how beautiful this is? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, listen to what God says about us. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, Paul writes, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of God may be, may be of God and not of us. This is profound. Paul's like, you are empty vessels. There's this treasure in you. The treasure in 2 Corinthians 4 was the knowledge of Christ that he may shine into your heart. So it was this knowledge of Jesus. It was the gospel he's in that place into this earthen vessel. Paul says, we have a treasure in earthen vessels. We see this in Jeremiah. We see this in Hebrews. There is this idea that you and I are really compared to a lot of times empty jars of clay, empty vessels. And he's like, and I need to fill these empty vessels with what? With oil. What is God saying? I need some empty vessels here that I can put oil into. Go to your neighbors. Talk to your neighbors. Get some empty vessels so that I can pour out oil into it. And when there's no more vessels, that's when the oil ceased. Do we actually see how profound this is? God, I so believe, is looking for people, empty vessels that in which he can pour his spirit into. This is so important. Part of the thing in our life is we go to God with a, a vessel, and it's probably not empty. It's probably filled with just some junk or some of us, a lot of selfishness, a lot of our ego, whatever. And God's like, no, 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 I need some empty vessels. Find some empty vessels that are willing and ready for the oil to be poured into. I, I really cannot stress how beautiful this is. God is like, I am looking for some empty vessels in which I can pour my spirit into. When does, you guys, this is profound, when does the oil cease? When there is no more vessels. The, the oil was constantly available as long as there was empty vessels. Are you following me? This is the book of Acts. This is what God does. God is like, I am looking for people that in which I can pour out my spirit into. And as long as there is empty vessels, there is oil that is ready to be poured out into them. This couldn't be more clear to me of just the power of the Spirit in God saying, I'm looking for empty vessels. It seems so evangelistic. Go to your neighbors, get their empty vessels. Like, this is just the Great Commission. Go into the world, find empty vessels in which God's like, pour out my Spirit into. This is how the book of Acts starts. It's just empty, ve- people praying and saying, Lord, we need to be filled with you. It says what? They were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. These empty vessels these empty jars of clay filled with this oil, filled with the Holy Spirit. God does it with Elisha. This does not exciting anyone else. I'm sorry. When I remember, I first read this, oh my like, God, you're so cool. You literally prepared us for the outpouring of your spirit with these empty vessels and the oil. This is so clear to me. He's like, I have, I have earthen vessels in which I put treasure into. I have these empty jars of clay that I put treasure into. God just does that. Again, as long as there was empty vessels, there was, there was oil available to be poured out. I cannot stress this. God is always looking for empty vessels to fill his oil or treasure with. You guys track with me. So here's the idea. I really think this needs to be, I can't just talk about this. Do you want to be filled with the Spirit? I I believe that we've talked about this in different points and times, and, and we looked at this with Elijah and Elisha and the mantle and filled the double portion of the Spirit. Paul even asked this question to different people at different points in ministry. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Or they, they ask others, "Have you, we've not so much even heard of the Holy Spirit. Like, what are you talking about? God is saying, I'm looking for people that says, God, would you fill me with your presence, with your power that is from, not from me, that is from on high. Jesus even promised that after my departure, God will pour out his Spirit on you. In the last days, God will pour out his Spirit. There's constantly this idea of God's like, I want to use people to pour out my Spirit. Now, what's the purpose of the Spirit? Just so you can feel good and powerful? God's like, no, no, the whole point of this is also just to equip this saints. It's for people to come to know Jesus. The point is that the body might be joint and knit together in unity and in love. The point of being filled with the Holy Spirit is not so you can feel something. It's so that you can be used by God in ways where only God can show up and God has to do his best work through people who are empty and want to be filled with the Spirit. This is so beautiful what God is doing. I actually think there's something really profound about this in the Old Testament. Um, We'll put the verse up here. It's in Leviticus uh, 14. I won't read it. I'll just honestly summarize it. Here's the idea. The priest back in this day was to take blood from the offering and to put it on his right earlobe, his right thumb, and his right big toe. All right, it sounds weird. Priest, God's like, I'm setting aside my priest for my work, for my ministry. Okay, blood from the sacrifice, blood applied here, blood applied here, blood applied there, blood applied in three spots. Then that same priest was to get oil and applied on top of the blood. Blood applied, or the, the oil applied to the top of the blood on the ear, the thumb, the toe. What is God doing? Why is God doing this? He's like, blood sets you apart. Blood concentrates you. I have a work for you. Before oil is applied, the blood is applied. Again, before oil is applied, the blood's applied. There's this idea that blood must be applied, and then the oil can be applied. Like, what is that? Okay. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, Leviticus 17 11. The blood is just central to the Old Testament. The idea of like, oh, innocent... Innocence, uh, a sacrifice, someone's guilty, blood is shed for the guilty. The innocent dies, blood is shed, the blood's brought to the priest. Why the right earlobe? Why the right thumb? Why the right toe? God's like, faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word of God. Separate to me, take in the word of God, separate to me, your ear, listen to me, hear my voice. That's so clear. Your hands, you're, you're ready for service. I'm serving you, God. My hands, it just the, the right thumb representing the whole hand, the whole idea of serving. Your feet, God, how beautiful are the feet of those who share the gospel. The idea of the feet. Okay, my feet, God, wherever I go, I'm, I'm supposed to be used by you and for you. God is like, I've set apart my priest. Hear from me, serve me, be sent by me Beautiful idea. Then then what? Then the oil is applied on top of the blood. And is this not the birth of the church? Jesus' blood is shed, the oil is given, the Holy Spirit's given. This idea of like, okay, now apply the oil. Now imply he's set apart He's forgiven, he's sanctified, but now give the power, now give the oil, now give the thing that's going to equip him and go for, for the work of the ministry, which is the Holy Spirit, which is what you and I need. I just think we see these beautiful little whispers of the gospel throughout the scripture, blood, then oil, empty vessels, then oil. God's like, I'm looking for people in which I can pour my spirit out into. One of the main requirements is be an empty vessel. I don't know how to put it other than that. How can I be filled with the spirit? I don't know, be an empty vessel and go, God, here I am. The idea is not so much like, um, how can I have the Holy Spirit? The question really is, how can the Holy Spirit have you? So it's not like, I want more of the Spirit. Okay, I get what you're saying. I do. But how can you give yourself to the Holy Spirit? Not like, I want the Spirit. The Spirit's like, I want you. I want you. I want to empower you. I want to fill you. Elisha says to this widow, go to your neighbors get these empty vessels, these empty jars of clay, and as long as there's empty vessels, the oil is filling them. Once there was no more vessels, then the oil ceased. When there was no more empty vessels, the oil is done. I just so believe God's like, I'm looking for some empty vessels in which I can pour my spirit into. Yes? You're tracking me, amen? Let's what Charles Ryrie says about this. He says, the solution to the problem of the church today is to solve the individual Christian's problems. And the solution to these problems is a person, the Holy Spirit, He is the antidote for every error, the power of every every weakness, the victory for every defeat, and the answer for every need. And He is available to every believer, for He lives in His heart and life. The answer and the power have already been given us in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's already been He's already been given. God has poured Your Spirit. Make yourself available. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Yes, Lord. Come. Fill me. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5 says, be filled with the Holy Spirit in this ongoing Greek tense. Continue to be filled with the Spirit. I think one of the main jobs of the church today is just say, hey, Spirit, I'm here. Fill me. Overwhelm me. I want to put myself in vulnerable situations where we have to talk to neighbors. We have to go, in, and like the point of being filled with the Spirit is not to feel really good. It's to be used by God for the kingdom of God and the purposes of God. And so are you putting yourself in a position where you can't be filled? Listen, the oil ceases when there's no more vessels. I know I've said this over again, but I, I just cannot stress this enough. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Here's why this is so important to me. There's a book that came out years ago. I still think it's profound, worth reading. It's called Forgotten God by Francis Chan. It's about the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says. He says, the reality is that the church, listen to this, the reality is that the church knew less about the Holy Spirit than most of us in the church today, the early church, at least in the intellectual sense. But they came to know the Spirit intimately and powerfully as he worked in and through their lives. All throughout the New Testament, we read of the apostles whose lives were led by the Spirit and lived out by his power. It's a crazy thought to think that we might know more about the Spirit in a systematic theology way, but less in an experiential way. They didn't have like all the books and writings and the extra writings and the book Forgotten God. Like, they didn't have all of that stuff. They just had this, like, um, we're getting saved, and, like, the power is upon us to, like, love our enemies and bless people and actually take in babies that are being, you know, discarded on the streets. And the early church was used in really, really beautiful ways. Why? Because the blood was applied to life and then oil. Blood and oil. Blood and the Holy Spirit. It's just like, oh, Jesus saved me, and now I need to be part of Jesus' saving. Jesus saved me, and now I need to help him in this mission to make disciples. Blood's been applied to my life, and then the oil, like, I I can't just sit here and go, blood was enough. Like, it's like, okay, blood was enough. It set me apart. It saved me. But now the oil is applied so that we can go out and also participate in the work of the kingdom. That is so beautiful. You guys are kind of looking at me like you're not trying. I need you to feel this. As long as there was empty vessels, the oil was available to be poured out. I would just say we need people who said, yes, Lord. Yes, I'm here I am. I love this, and she uses this, the jars are fl- paid, or the jars are filled, and he's like, now just, just sell that and pay off your debt. Obviously, for her, in this momentary story, it's like, there's a debt that needs to be paid, and I'm giving you what you need. The debt is paid. Next, we'll move on, because I just I don't know, we'll move on. All right, verse eight. Here's what we see. Number two is this. That's the first one. Next, there's another woman, a very wealthy, generous, hospitable woman. Again, this would have been a great Mother's Day. Sorry, I missed this message last week. But here's the idea. Number two is a son is given and a son is risen. Let's read verse eight. Second Kings chapter four, verse eight. Here's what happens. We're gonna read a few verses. Verse eight, it says, one day Elisha went on to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. I love that. She needed to eat up. So uh, whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. Verse 11, one day he came, he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant. So you'll see Gehazi, by the way, a lot more kind of, you know, he kind of messes up a lot. Gehazi, he says, call this Shunammite, call this woman. And when he called her, she stood before him. And he said, to her, he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? Like, what can I do for you, man? I want to, what do you want? I'll talk to the king for you. She answered, I dwell among my own people. What she's saying is, I'm good. I'm content. I'm happy among my own people. Verse 14. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Geazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. (laughs) He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and bore a son about the time of the following spring, as Elisha has said to her. Okay, this story is profound. Elisha's passing back and forth in a certain area in Shunam. There's a Shunammite woman. It says she's very wealthy, uh, and she would just urge him to come eat. I don't know. I just I don't know why I love that. I just love this woman who, think about this. She's wealthy. She has it going for her, but she still cares for the others. She still, she still cares about being hospitable. She has what she needs. She seems pretty content. She seems good. She doesn't have to be looking out for others' needs, but she is. How beautiful is that? So you see kind of her character in this way. You see her character is, hey, this guy passing back and forth, let's just invite him in. Let's invite him in. Let's feed him. Hey, actually, honey, let's build a room for him. Let's get him a bed, chair, little lampstand. He can work and study. Uh, This is insane hospitality. I have to point this out. We've talked about this. She was honoring a prophet, so the prophet's going to honor her. Jesus actually has a lot to say about that, but this is something really sweet. She was like, I see this guy. I know he's a man of God. Um, Let's take care of him. Let's be hospitable to him. This is mind-blowing to me. we got to talk about this, by the way. We know that in Eastern kind of cultures, even today, hospitality is way higher on the list than it is for us. Like, we know that we, we struggle with hospitality as Americans. We do. We love to be hospitable to people we know, not to people we don't know. That's kind of the opposite of hospitality. Hospitality is really like, kind of like that foreigner and that stranger, and you're being hospitable to them. Like, it's very easy. As Jesus says, what is it that you love those who love you? Even pagans do that, right? Jesus like, anyone can be hospitable to people that you know and love. It's about being hospitable to people you don't know. Jesus actually illustrates this in Luke 14. He's like, man, invite the disabled, the lame, the ones who can't pay you back to dinner. Hospitality has just a really unique bent then than it does today. For us, we're like, I like to think we're hospitable. We have people over a lot. I like, we like to do that. My wife is great at that. She's great at like hosting things and have people over and, you know, you buy food. Like, we do do that. But it's, to be honest, you're like, am I, am I like the biblical hospitality or is that just like easy friend hospitality? Like, what is that? I love what it says in Hebrews 13. You might know this verse. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I, I, that verse is crazy to me, obviously. Bucket list things spiritually. Be like, yo, I hosted an angel that night. It was amazing. Like, I met this person, invited them over. By the end of the meal, I'm like, oh, you're an angel. So cool. Like, I don't know. I love that. Now, obviously, there's different references to that with Abraham and Lot, and just, there's different references Old Testament-wise. But don't, don't forsake the first part of that command. This is a New Testament command, actually, for us. This is an imperative verse used for us. He says, do not, again, neglect to show hospitality to strangers. This is a command. This is a beautiful command. We have the privilege to be hospitable because we've benefited from other people's hospitality, ultimately ultimately, God's hospitality. But I want to be really clear on this. This is such a beautiful idea that the church, I think the church has struggled with this in the last century or so, and we're losing our weight and our authority in the world. We have been known historically, for, for being very hospitable people. We have been known for the Good Samaritan, that story or analogy of, okay, this person's in need. How can we go the extra mile? I've met some beautiful humans where I go, oh, you, what you did for that person was more than just give them a meal or help them out. Like you helped them find a job. You checked in on them daily. You helped them get, find recovery and get into recovery. Like, oh, okay. You've actually displayed hospitality in a beautiful, beautiful way. I think that the church—if you feel like, man—the church and the world—and we're more at odds. And there's more tension, and the world actually despises the church's morality, and the, the church actually looks—the world actually looks at the church and is like, "Oh, the church—you're not doing anything for anyone." Like, we're going we're to show the real what real morality and goodness looks like. My, the point is that the world kind of looks down at the church. Maybe, maybe because we've missed out on actually being hospitable and stepping up in moments where we could have been loving and kind to the stranger, but instead we weren't loving and kind. We wanted to be a little sect and have our own little party. What I'm trying to get at is this, I actually believe, the way the church will be effective moving forward is actually being crazy hospitable. If the church wants to have weight and influence in changing the world for Jesus, we're going to have to become the most hospitable people on earth. I really believe that. If we want to see people come to know Jesus, if you want to see people who feel like, what they believe, what they do, how they live their life, oh, so shameful, invite them over. Talk to them. Let them get to know you. You get to know them. We have failed at that, and we've created more tension, I think. I think this is actually really important to say, I don't see life the way they see it. Let me have them over. Actually, I I really disagree with them on a lot of main things. Maybe I should love on them and feed them and talk to them and be like Jesus to them. Maybe Jesus ate meals with people he disagreed with. Do you think so? I think so. (laughs) I think this is actually incredibly important. This idea of this word hospitality, literally in the Greek, because it's Hebrews 13 Greek, it's this word phyloxenia. I mentioned this before, I showed this before. Think philo, think phileo. It literally means brother, or, or brotherly love, this philo word. Xenia, it means stranger or foreigner. The reason why I'm put this verse up here, or put this little phrase, you've heard the phrase, you've all heard the phrase xenophobia, the fear of the stranger. We kind of use it as like fear of the foreigner. That's actually what it means, xenophobia. Phobia, fear, xenia, the stranger, foreigner, fear of the stranger. The word that's used here in the Greek, in the New Testament for us, is philoxenia. It's the exact opposite. He's like, you need to be brotherly love to the foreigner. To the stranger, that's different, man. It's in the person that we want to other, the person we want to say it's us versus them. That's who you need to have over. Church, do we hear this? He's saying true hospitality is loving the foreigner, the stranger, the one you completely disagree with, the one who sees life one way and you see it the other way. Do not forget to show philosyneia to the stranger. Do not forget to show lo- a brotherly, a brotherly love, phileo love to the foreigner and stranger. That is something where I think the church, instead of us getting bitter or mad or frustrated, I can't believe they believe that. I can't believe they think that. I can't believe they do that. What if we didn't post everything on social media, and what if we actually asked the person we strongly disagree with over, hey, can we just have a meal? Can I serve you? Not even to talk about how wrong they are. Can I feed you? (laughs) Can I love on you? Can I listen to you? Yo, do you think the church will have a greater impact? If you're saying no, okay, I need you to, like, repent. Like, no, I think if you're like, actually, yes. If we love the stranger, the foreigner, the one who thought differently, acted differently, I'm like, I can't believe they do X. I can't believe they believe X. I get it. I'm not saying it's wrong to have those feelings. I'm not saying it's wrong. To say, it's, it's, we as a church need to know how to lovingly disagree with someone. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to say, I completely disagree with your lifestyle decision-making, but I am called to love you, and I do love you by the love of Jesus, because guess what? I was once a foreigner and stranger to God, and he loved me. I was once an enemy of God, and he loved me. Do you understand that you and I have benefited from phylosenia? That God has loved the alien, the stranger, the foreigner, the wicked, the enemy of God? Do we get that? We were called enemies of God. You can't get more foreign or strange than that. James says you were enemies of God. Think about this. I have benefited from God who came to us and invited us over. I have benefited from divine hospitality. So have you. Don't think for a second you haven't benefited from divine hospitality we have. And he's like, this is how the Christians should love and live. The my woman's amazing. I've never, like, I've truly never seen to that extent. Honey, build a room for this person I don't know. Okay, babe. <laughs> I, don't know, I just love this story. Build a room, feed them, let them study, let them be there. We're going to love this person. We're going to serve this person. This hospitality to me was unbelievable. There's a book by this guy named Joshua Jip, great last name. Uh, he wrote a book on hospitality. Here's what he said. Hospitality is the act or process whereby the identity of the stranger is transformed into that of guest. The primary impulse of hospitality is to create a safe and welcoming place where a stranger can be converted into a friend. The practice of hospitality to strangers very frequently hopes to create relationships and friendships between those who were previously either alienated at enmity or simply unknown to the other. Just saying, hey, it's not us versus them. I'm not going to other you. I'm going to bring you in, love you, serve you, and be like Jesus in John 13, wash your feet. It's like this idea that I'm going to make you feel completely, hopefully at peace and welcomed here. You can still disagree. You can still say, I don't see it that way. You can still do all of that. But the idea is like, but are you going to love this? Are you going to follow this? In? Are you going to welcome them in? Because I'll say this again hospitality, I think, has been a key way in which the church has won lost people to Jesus throughout the centuries. It just has been. We have been so much better at this in times past. We've seen, I think, more of like an awakening or, or an idea of this today of like, yes, we need to be loving to the other, to the person you completely disagree with. Rather than saying, you're wrong and you're going to hell, we need to say, no, we love you. Jesus Love you. Jesus did everything He could so you wouldn't have to be separated. From him. Do you understand that? Of course, Jesus calls us out of darkness into light. Of course, Jesus calls you to repentance. He calls me to repentance. All of us are called to repentance. But you need to know that Jesus loved you and you don't have to continue this way. He has a better plan. And my point is we need to engage in this. Yes, church? I cannot stress this enough. This beautiful woman who sees this man, we're gonna feed him, we're gonna have him over. This idea of hospitality is unbelievable. By the way, a couple things with her in this situation. He's like, this is amazing what can we do for you? And she's like, I dwell among my own people. This is such a weird response to me. I, she's like, what, do you want me to talk to, I'll talk to the king for you. I'll talk to a general, what do you want? I'll do anything. I remember, he's Elisha, he has access to those people. And she's like, I dwell, I'm, I'm content. That is an unbelievable response. This is a woman, I think, who didn't just say this, I think she, I think she learned this. I think she believed that. I think she's like, no, no, I'm, I'm good. And then it was Gehazi that goes, You know no, she, do, she doesn't have a son. Her husband's old. And Elisha's like, all right, bring her in. You want a son? You're going to have a son this time next year. She's like, don't do that It's my heart. Don't do that It's my emotions. Don't do that. She ends up having a son. The reason why I bring this up is she didn't ask for this. She's just kind of going, I'm content. I'm in a place in my life where God, I'm at rest and I'm at peace with what we want to do. Paul said it this way, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is not an easy thing. This is not a thing that comes naturally. This is learned. Paul says, I have learned to be content. There, it is not easy to be content, but no, no, it's not. It's something that we learn. When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that's literally about this, about contentment. The verse we use about, like, I don't know, trying to, like, dunk a basketball, I can do all things, and you can't. The, the verse that we use for some of these things, it was not used about, like, some crazy big endeavor. Is literally about being used about contentment. Paul's like, I've learned to have a lot. I've learned to have a little. I can do all things through Christ. Paul's I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is in the context of contentment. How fascinating is that? I need Philippians 4.13 just for his contentment. Like, I can do all things. through Christ who strengthens me. And that's just about being at peace in life. <laughs> it's unbelievable what the context is. I believe this woman learned that. I believe she had that. She's just like, no, I'm good. I, I dwell among my people. I, I get to serve you. I get to serve others. I get to be helpful that way. And he's like, I just want to bless you for something you're not even asking for. So he shares this with her. She's a woman of contentment. We'll pick up. We're going to read the rest of the story, and we'll finish here. But so let's pick up. So gives her a son. Uh, verse uh, 18. Let's pick up. Verse 18, it says, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And so, by the way, when it says he's grown, uh, it's, it's a word in used in Hebrew, it's probably like he's five. He's not grown. He's like, he's not, he's not weaned. He's not a child that breastfeeds. He's probably four, and they probably went to like four or five. So it's probably four or five. He said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. I'm sorry, this is just such dads. This is the best. Dad, my head, take him to his mom. <laughs> oh, it's so realistic. Verse 20. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon. And then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God in that room. And she shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. I need to go. He said, uh, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon or Sabbath. That's ideas like you might be seeking a blessing on one of those days. She said, all is well. Hear that? Why are you going to him? It's all is well. Verse 24. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. He would just often go there. So Elijah did his great works. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is a Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, so Gehazi asked that. She answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she runs past Gehazi. She caught hold of his feet. She goes to Elisha. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. God hasn't told me what's going on. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as yourself live, I will not leave you. I'm not going to leave you, Elisha. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi, he went on ahead and he laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. When Elisha came to the house, he saw the child lying dead on the bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell to his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Okay, what? <sighs> I want to give you a son. You're going to have a son this time next year. She has a son. The son around the age of five goes my head. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Go to your mom. <laughs> she goes to the mom. She's holding him, she's comforting him, he dies. She brings him to his room and goes to the husband and says, I, I need a servant, I need a donkey. He goes, is everything all right? All is well. So bizarre. I want to like address that. All is well. Is she lying? What, what's going on here? All is well. She runs up to Ge- Gehazi, sees her from far. Hey, are you good? Is the child good? your husband good? All is well. I need to get to that guy. <laughs> He's like, she gets to his feet, falling on his feet. Gehazi's like, hey, get away from her. And I was like, what you, no. I love this, by the way. You see Elisha's limitations. He's like, I, I don't know why she's here. God has not revealed to me. Like, I would, I, I thought I would know why you're, there's urgency. And she's in bitter distress, it says. Like she's, like, she's like panicked. She's grieved. She's hurting. I didn't even ask. Did I ask you for this? And it's such a bizarre thing where he's like, go take my staff. Lay on his head. It doesn't work. I want to break this story down just a little bit because this is so fascinating to me on so many levels. First of all, I want you to see this. Um, In, in verse 8 and in verse 9 and 10, and, and, or sorry, in these verses where they ask her, is all well? And she says, all is well. In verse 26, all is well. I don't think she's lying. I really don't. I think the husband's like, I don't think it's like, um, let me just kind of, when you ask me, how's your day going? I'm like, I'm good. But like, maybe things aren't good. I don't think she's doing that. I don't. I think she was a woman who was content before this and she's content during this, even though she's grieving. Even though she's in bitter distress, as it says. Do you know by the way, I think it's okay to be content and also be grieving. It's very interesting, but she was content before that she seems to... Elisha's servant, is all well? All is well. It's crazy the phrases too, just all is well, all is well, is all well, all is well. <laughs> and is all well? I mean, her world in a sense is falling apart. She just lost her miracle child. And she's like, all is well. But then she goes to Elisha and she's in bitter distress and she's like, Elisha, I didn't ask for this. Like, what's going on? I do believe her when she says all is well. I do. Pers- Masking the pain. Are you hiding the pain? Maybe maybe there's elements of that at times. There's someone I knew deeply who loved deeply years ago who passed away. And I'm like, you have a really unique peace right now. He goes, because my soul is good with Jesus. He died of cancer, but I was meeting with him, checking in on him, going to his house, talking with him. And he's just like, I have Jesus, I have everything. Like, how can you be there? Because you don't know what I had before I didn't have Jesus. I had everything and I had nothing. Now I have Jesus and I have everything. There's really unique times where you meet some Christians who go, you really believe that? Like in like, yeah, that is so beautiful. Listen, is all well with you? All is well. Is all well? All is well. Obviously, she's in bitter distress. Obviously, all is not well outwardly. But I do think this content, this woman who was content, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm 12 own people. I think this content woman was, in a sense, well. All is well. But obviously, it's okay to have both emotions at the same time of like, no, no, it's weird. I have a unique hope. I grieve. I'm sad. I'm in distress. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. But uniquely enough, all is well if this doesn't make sense to you, I don't know, welcome to just following Jesus. Because this is one of those things where I, I think I'm learning and I don't think I've arrived yet on that thought and that truth, but I think that is something that I've had to see over the years more and more in my life and other Christians' life where you're like, things are kind of falling apart. You are showing emotion. You are in distress. Are you okay? Obviously, this is a lot. Obviously, it's a lot to bear. Obviously, my heart's a little overwhelmed, but all's well. It's just weird how those truths can coincide at the same time where we grieve, as Paul says, but not as others who grieve. How does Horatio write... It is well with my soul. I, it's over his f- four daughters who are dead in the ocean. Here's the only answer I can give you. Okay, ready? It's the answer for this woman, it's the answer for Ratio. Resurrection. The only way it can be well is if there's resurrection. The only way any of this can make sense in life. Pain, suffering, death, cancer, all this stuff. It's a lot, it's a lot. It's all well. Obviously, I'm in bitter distress. Obviously, it's a lot, but there's the resurrection. Church is not over, I promise. (laughs) But we have something that the world does not have. Think about this, you guys. We actually believe there is a resurrection. We believe that though we die, we shall live. We believe that if your faith is in Jesus, we believe that love upon death does not end, but love continues. We believe that though you die, you will live because you see Jesus. So is it well? No, I'm in bitter distress, but all is well. How can both resurrection? How can that make sense? It doesn't make sense. Does resurrection make sense? None of it makes sense, but it's true. But it's going to happen. This is a little taste. Her son to rise, he's going to die again. Her son rose again. He's alive, but he died again. Anyone who ever rose again in the Bible died again. The only person who died and rose again and stayed alive is Jesus. He's called the first fruits of the resurrection. I love that phrase, the first fruits. You know what that means? He's the first one to die, rise again, to never die again. Because one day we'll die, rise again, to never die again. Because one day you and I will rise to never die again. In the middle of suffering, pain, this head thing for this kid, and he just dies. In the middle, of like, what just happened, God? That makes no sense, that is wrong. The thing we cleave to is that death was not part of God's original hope and plan for us. He told us that you will surely die, but Jesus, in his goodness and his grace, died so that you and I can live. And so even though it doesn't make sense to us, even though there's suffering and there's pain, the only way we can say all is well, it is well with my soul, is because of resurrection. Because here's the guy, Horatio knows, I, I might not see them in this life, but I'll see them in the next. And there's a, such a unique hope that you and I can have, and this, I believe this woman had it. I think whether she knew she'd see her son again right then in this time, or she'd see him again one day, she goes to him. And I think, again, what a beautiful thing. In your pain and suffering, she runs to the man of God. She runs to God. Help. I need help. By the way, I just love this. The staff thing on the head... I love, I love this, by the way. Elisha's like, take this staff and put it on his head. It doesn't work. There's going to be times you do things in life in ministry. It doesn't work. It didn't work. What is it that he does? He stretches himself out over this child completely. Obviously, if you look at him and look at the child, the child would be gone. You couldn't even see the child. Why? He stretched out completely over him, face to face, hands to hand. He's bigger, longer, taller. The, the child, in a sense, is engulfed in this man. You can't see the child anymore. What is he doing? If you guys remember this, please stay with me. 1 Kings 17, Elijah, his mentor, did this with another dead woman's son. Do you remember this? In 1 Kings 17, he stretches out over this little boy who died, okay? Elisha is doing now what he knows. Okay, my my master Elijah did this. I'm gonna do the same thing. Here's why I find this so profound. If you're looking down from heaven's perspective, you don't see this little child. You just see this man stretch out over him. It's almost like, oh, the kid's hidden in this man. Like, you can't see him. He's gone. I began with Kelman and with Keller. He says, Jesus Christ stretched himself out on us when we were cadavers. The true God is a stretched out God. What I love about this is there is a God who, in a sense, engulfed us, covered us, and says, I'm going to take your place. Your, your life, I love what Paul says in Colossians, your life is hidden with Christ, hidden in Christ. Like the idea is, my life is hit Christ covers me on the cross. He stretched out his arms and covered me. He covered my sins. He covered my shame. Covered my sin. He covered all of it. And he rose again. And Elisha, all he does is stretch out over this kid. You can no longer see this kid. You see Elisha. And the idea is like, oh, his life is hidden in Elisha. The idea, our life is hidden in Christ. So yes, I die, but I will live because Christ stretched out on me, stretched his life out on me. This is the idea. Is like a miraculous son is given, dies, and is risen again. And I just love this idea of like, you know what, Lord, thank you. Because it doesn't make sense. Suffering pain, evil, wickedness, it's not well. Things are actually not good right now. However, I have resurrection hope however though I die, I shall live. Listen, I just want to end with this. You need to have this resurrection hope. I know it's a little longer. Thank you for being patient with me. Here's what I want to say. We're going to pray. We're going to take communion now, and we're going to thank God for this resurrection hope. You're going to grab this little cup with this little cracker in it, and you're going to take out the cracker, and you're going to eat it and say, God, thank you that your body was broken for me. God, thank you that your blood was shed for me. Thank you, God, that blood was applied, and oil now too can be applied. And church, here's what I want to say. This communion, this, this is for us, is an act of faith of just remembering Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, that his blood does cover you in your sins. I will say this, if you do not believe on Jesus, then do not take this. Don't take this. Why remember something you don't even believe in? So there's no pressure to take this at all. But if you say, no, Jesus, I believe and I surrender to this truth that your blood covers a multitude of sins. Your blood covers and forgives me of my sins. Thank you, Jesus. Eat and drink. Celebrate the resurrection. Celebrate this unique hope that you and I have that though we die, we shall live. It's all well. I'm in bitter distress, but all is well because I believe in the resurrection. That is what we look to and that is what we cling to. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna take, we're gonna take communion. Father, we just wanna say thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for this truth, God. It is so difficult to feel and even say those words all as well. But Lord, we just so agree. We so agree, Lord, that it is well with our soul because, Jesus, you took our place. You died. You took on the weight of the world of sin, of shame, and you rose again, and you cover us. Our life is hidden in you. You were stretched out over us, that we are hidden in you, Jesus, that we have this resurrection hope that though we die, we shall live. And so, Lord, we thank you for this story of the gospel that's repeated in so many different ways and so many different times, that there's a miraculous son who was given, who died and rose again. And we thank you that you are that son, that Jesus, you paid our debt, that you gave us the oil, you gave us your spirit. We need you, we look to you, and we ask that you just meet us here as we sing to you now, as we take communion now, as we remember the cross now. We do not want to rush this. We do not want this to be um, something we take lightly. We just hold this up and say, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, God. That was something that's foolish to the world is the wisdom and power of you, God, the cross. That what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we just say, thank you, Jesus, that you are the son, that you are the son who rose again. We just want to boast in your finished work. And so we just want to praise you now, sit with you now, in your name, Jesus, amen. Church, our team's going to be playing a song of worship during this time. Take, eat, drink, talk it over with the Lord, sing, join us in worship. But we're just going to create a few minutes of space to eat, drink, pray over this, jump in and sing with us. But again, I want you to spend some time right now, you and the Lord, bow your head, talk to him, thank him, just have some unblown time with Jesus. Let's do that now.